It says, praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. Full of honor and majesty is his work and his righteousness endures forever. Did I hear an amen? Amen. Yeah. He has gained renown by his wonderful deeds. The Lord is gracious and merciful. Amen. He provides food for those who fear him. He is ever mindful of his covenant. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the heritage of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Today we continue our sermon series called Fearless. You know, we live in a world that is so dominated by fear. But we have a Savior who has come to set us free from all fear. From the fear of failure, from the fear of missing out, from the fear of being found out, from the fear of rejection, even the fear of death. And over the course of this sermon series, we've been exploring how not to be afraid. It's kind of the anti-fear sermon series where we've been proclaiming each and every week our memory verse from Isaiah chapter 12, verse 2. From Isaiah chapter 12, verse 2. Look, God is my deliverer. I will trust in him and not fear For the Lord gives me strength and protects me. He has become my deliverer. And I love this so much. We got to read it again. So if you're able to stand, I want to invite you to stand. And let's proclaim these words today. From the bottom of our hearts, realizing that God, in fact, is our deliverer. Let's read Isaiah 12 to look. God is my deliverer. I will trust in him and not fear. For the Lord gives me strength and protects me. He has become my deliverer. But what does it mean to fear this God? What is it that it's the beginning of wisdom? That's what we're going to explore today. So let's ask God for his guidance. Father, we are so grateful and thankful for you in our lives. And we declare that we are nothing without you. That we need you right now to invade our our world, invade our space and time right where we're at today. I ask, Lord, you would speak to us each individually so that we can hear clearly. That we can know you and follow you and love you deeper. And that as a result, we can love those around us better. We pray these things in the name that never fails, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You can give a little golf clap. That's all right. A little little golf clap. I believe that some people have an unhealthy fear of God. They picture God 
sending down torrents of rain and lightning. Unleashing disastrous plagues and burning people alive, all of which God actually does. That's not the problem. The problem is that their scope of understanding is limited, it's obscured, it's blinded because they refuse to look at the reasons or purposes behind God's dangerous actions. And so they're left with an unhealthy fear of God. Where they view God like the big bad wolf who huffs and he puffs and he blows houses down just for the fun of it. So I better steer clear from this big bad wolf, God. Having an unhealthy fear of God, or better yet, a terror of God, it leads to a whole host of problems. It leads to a panic-stricken life apart from God. Some people have an unhealthy fear of God. Some people have an unhealthy lack of fear of God. They picture God behaving nicely, politically correct, inoffensively minding his P's and Q's, not wanting to ruffle anybody's feathers. But that's not God. That's not the God we meet in the pages of the Bible. And this false perception of God, it leads to the fear or the lack of fear of God. Where we realize, well, since God will just excuse all my sin, I can pretty much do whatever I want. It doesn't really matter because he will just forgive my sin because God is just like an enabling grandmother. I can do whatever I want. I can be as mean and nasty as I want because grandma ain't going to do nothing. Grandma ain't going to lift a finger. God, uh, uh, Grandma is not going to do a thing. Having an unhealthy lack of fear of God leads to huge disobedience. Huge disobedience and lukewarm faith. So then what fear of God is appropriate? Well, when the biblical authors speak about the fear of God, they're referring to awe and wonder, respect, reverence, and also a healthy dose of fear. Not like the fear of clowns, but like the fear of fire dancing in the darkness. You know, you can see by its light, you can feel its warmth, but you touch it and you're going to get burned. Or like the fear of a mountain so tall, cascading with its sharp cliffs cutting into the sky above. And there you stand at the base of this mountain looking up thousands of feet. That's fear. Or like the fear of the ocean with its surging tides and crashing waves. And there you are trying to keep your head above the surface of the water. That's, that's fearful. When the biblical authors speak about the fear of God, they often use images like this to describe what God is like and who is this God? I want to show you a couple others from Scripture. The first one I want to show you is that God should be feared like a warrior. This is from Job sixteen fourteen. God bursts upon Job continually as he rushes at him 
like a warrior. God should be feared like a warrior. God should be feared like a fortress. This is in Nahum chapter 1 verse 7 where God is described as a fortress for the faithful on the day of trouble. Notice God's not described as a cozy, comfortable, cute, quaint, Pinterest-inspired cottage. No, an impenetrable fortress. God should be feared like a warrior and like a fortress. God should also be feared like a consuming fire. This is from Deuteronomy 4.24. He's not merely described as a fire, but a consuming fire. There's no s'mores to be had. No chestnuts roasting on this all-consuming, face-melting fire. God should be feared like a flood. 2 Samuel 5.20, David describes God like a flood bursting out upon his enemies like unrelenting. That's terrifying. God should be feared like a whirlwind. This is in Job 38 and 40 verse 6, where God speaks to Job out of a whirlwind. Talk about a bad hair day. I mean, imagine trying to have a conversation with an F5 tornado. That would be rather difficult and absolutely terrifying. And now the last one I want to show you is that God should be feared. This is my favorite, like a lion slash leopard slash mama bear. This comes from Hosea chapter 13, verses 7 through 8. It presents a graphic rendition of God's love slash judgment. Upon Israel. So I will become like a lion to them, like a leopard. I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs and will fear, uh, tear open the covering of their heart. There I will devour them like a lion as a wild animal would mangle them. I've been waiting to use that one at a wedding, but I haven't had any takers. <laughs> Okay, we get it. God should be feared. But what does that actually look like in my life? In an ordinary, typical life? Well, that's what I want to explore this morning. This morning, I want to look at a, a man whose fear of God marked his life. A man whose fear of God, his awe, his wonder, his reverence for God... It was greater than anything in his life. It outweighed everything. So if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22. It says, after these things, God tested Abraham. His name in Hebrew is Avraham. It means something like exalted father of the multitude or people. The only thing was, good old Abe wasn't exactly at this point exalted. And having two kids, no offense to you moms and dads who may only have two kids. Two kids doesn't necessarily constitute a multitude of people. While Abraham didn't necessarily have a multitude of people at this point. And while he wasn't exactly exalted at this point in the story, what he did have a lot of was testing. He had been tested good and plenty up to this point. I mean, if he were to respond to God, all these things that 
After all these things, that actually constitutes a long list of testing you've already tested me with, God. I mean, for one, you told me to leave my homeland, leave everything behind and go to this strange new foreign land. I did it. I keep having to rescue my nephew Lot. That's a whole lot of testing that happens. And then you give me this promise about having a son someday, and that took forever. I thought I had to take matters into my own hands, you know, with that slave girl, Hagar. And that was testing when I had to send her away. It was pretty much a a huge test when, God, you asked me to do that strange surgery on my man parts. That pushed it to the brink. And then, finally, my old lady popped out Isaac after a long time of waiting. If I were Abraham, I would have been like, God, we are through with the testing. No more testing. I think I've been through quite enough. But Abraham doesn't respond like that. He voices no complaint. After these things, God tested Abraham. The verse continues. He said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. The Hebrew is hineni. Literally, behold, check it out. Look, see, me. Or here is me. It's the typical response to a prophetic call. You've got these big dog prophets of the Old Testament, like Isaiah and Samuel. When God calls them to do something, they respond, Hineni, here I am. And here, as the text continues, God gives Abraham a list of deliberate details. And with each detail, everything gets even more challenging than the previous. It gets harder and harder as it goes further. He said, verse 2, take your son, your only son, Isaac. Hold, hold up. Abner Ishmael, I thought he was a son too. Well, he's not the son through the promise. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. Now, there's been much debate about the location of Moriah. Second Chronicles 2, 3, 1 says that, suggests at least, that the location of Moriah is the later place where the temple of Jerusalem would be located. So take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. That means something, a carcass, completely engulfed in flames. When the one bringing an offering to the altar would give a burnt offering, it's a complete surrender of everything on their part. And on God's part, it's a complete acceptance. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. What? This is nuts. Somebody better call the authorities, get CPS on the line, call 911. This is cray cray. God demanding human sacrifice? Really? That's radical. That seems rather out of character for God. And what's even more crazy is that Abraham doesn't voice any resistance. 
I mean, maybe Isaac was being a nuisance at home. He's like, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll give him as a burnt offering right now. We don't have to go to Moriah. It's right here. I don't know. But he voices no complaint. He simply obeys God's word and his will. If you fear God, you obey his word and his will. What is his word and his will for my life? Well, God's word and will might be something particular, but in general, it's loving God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and loving your neighbor, your enemy, your friends, your family as yourself. If you fear God, you obey his word and his will. And that's exactly what Abraham does here. As verses 3 through 5 continues, and when we find out that Abraham's going and he's not kicking and screaming, everything dramatically slows down. And we get these strange details, these heartbreaking details about each and every thing. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and set out and went to the place in the distance that God had shown him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place far away. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there. We will worship. And then we will come back to you. I thought that God said that you're going to offer Isaac as a burnt offering. Isaac's not coming back. What, what is Abraham saying here? Is this deception on his part? Like, yeah, guys, you stay here with the donkey. Don't worry. It's not like I'm going up to the mountain to slaughter my son and offer him as a burnt offering. I mean, who would do that? Is this deception trying to throw off suspicion on his part? Or is this faith? That's what the author of Hebrews seems to think. In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19, it says, So Abraham, by faith, went, when put to the test, offered up Isaac. He who had received the promises was ready to offer up his only son, of whom he had been told, It is through Isaac that descendants shall be named for you. And here's the crux right here, verse 19. He considered the fact that God is able even to raise someone from the dead. So even if Isaac gets sacrificed, gets slaughtered, his throat slit and put on the altar and burned up, Abraham apparently believed that God was able to resurrect him, bring him back to life. And figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Spoiler alert right there. Verse 6 says, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering. But before we, we go there, uh, this is crazy faith on Abraham's part. Absolutely crazy faith on Abraham's part. Well, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. The knife in Hebrew is ma'achelet. It's not your typical dining room utensil. This is a meat cleaver. This is a butcher's knife. It's what the, the priests would use as they would offer sacrifices. So the two of them walked on together. Verse 7 says, Isaac said to his father Abraham, and I always picture it like an Oliver Twist, 
cute little innocent British voice right here. Father? And he said, here I am, my son. He nay me. The same response we saw him give to God. Here I am, my son. He said, this is Isaac, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? This is heartbreaking. Absolutely heartbreaking. And the text emphasizes this heartbreak even more. We have this continual repetition. This continual repetition of the familial language. I mean, how many times have we heard, my son, my father, his son, his father? It's heartbreaking. It's tragic. And how old, how old is Isaac here? Well, the Hebrew says that he is Na'ar. Literally a boy, but Na'ar can also refer to young men as the servants who are left with the donkey are called Ha Na'arim. They are young men. Well, we know that Isaac is not a baby because he speaks. He carries wood on his back, so he's probably older than 10 or at least able to carry wood on his back. He's not married yet, as we will later find out in the text. My best guess is that he's a young teen or adolescent. doesn't really make it that much easier to bear if he's a baby or someone older. It's still really, really troubling. Verse 8 says, Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. God will provide. That's the central theme of this entire passage, that God will provide, or at least Abraham hopes so. I love what Psalm 34 verse 9 says about what it means to fear the Lord. It says, fear the Lord, you his holy people, for those who fear him, they lack nothing. If you fear God, you lack nothing. And I think this is what Abraham is so focused on. He realizes that if he fears God, God will, in fact, provide. That nothing will be impossible. If you fear God, you lack nothing. Absolutely nothing. You may be like, well, I got bills to pay and I don't have the money. God is bigger than your bills and your life is bigger than your bills and your indebtedness or whatever it may be. Whatever situation you might be, if you fear God, you will lack nothing because God will provide just what you need. And it may not be getting your bills paid on time. It might be something a whole lot bigger than that. If you fear God, you lack for nothing. And also, nothing is impossible because... God is with you. I think so often we have this poverty mindset where we view ourselves so limited. And as a result of that, we actually view God as limited, only being able to do certain things. We put him in a nice, neat box with a little bow on top and say, God can work in these areas of my life. But God is not bound by any boxes. I mean, he's the one who created the idea and the concept of geometry and the whole idea of a box. So don't put God in a box, if you know what I mean, right? Amen, right? All right. Wake up, wake up, wake up. It's all right. The good stuff is coming here. We're getting to the moment right here. 
Verse 9 says, when they came to the place that God had shown him. I told you it was going to get good right here. When they came to the place that God had shown him. You want some help with that? Weird guy in the black suit. Thank you, sir. When they came to the place that God had shown him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now, this is where everything gets really awkward. It's the best I could come up with, all right? Here. This is where everything gets really awkward. Especially for Isaac. I mean, he's trekking all day with his dad for the past couple of days. All right, we're finally at the land of Moriah. And you've built this cute, nice altar of stones. You you stacked the wood neatly on top. Everything looks great, Dad. But where's the lamb? Where's the ram? Where's the goat? Wait. Wait. What? what? What are you doing, Dad? What do you think you're doing? Why are you binding me up with rope, Dad? Why are you tying me up? You said that God would provide. I didn't think it was going to be through me. In Judaism, this story is known as the Akedah. Literally, the binding, the binding of Isaac. In this story, our Jewish brothers and sisters focus exclusively on Isaac. They see the story through the lens of Isaac. Why why don't we do that? We often focus on this story through the lens of Abraham and his great test of faith. But here we have our Jewish brothers and sisters focusing on Isaac being bound up on the altar. Why is that? Well, maybe it has to do with being marginalized. Maybe it has to do with being subjugated, being physically bound, and also socially bound up for a long time. But I think we learn something very significant about the fear of God from the perspective of Isaac. We learn that Isaac didn't run. Remember, he's probably like a young teen or adolescent at this point. He did not run. Maybe Abraham's got fast hands and binds him up real quick. Or maybe Isaac is obeying his father as his father is obeying his father. Fearing God means you don't step out when things get tough. If you fear God... You obey. You don't step out when things get tough. Well, things have gotten real tough, especially for Isaac here. It says, then Abraham reached. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took his knife to kill his son. Now, these words should not be in the same sentence. He reached out his hand, grabbed his knife to kill his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Hineni, 
here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham looked up, saw a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. This story in Genesis 22 is about a a test of faith. But it's also about a, a command against child sacrifice. Let's look at the first interpretation here that this story in Genesis 22 is a test of faith. It's a test of faith and also a challenge of idolatry. Because, you know, Abraham waited so long for Isaac. And so Isaac may have become like an idol. But in being willing to sacrifice Isaac, Abraham showed extraordinary faithfulness and obedience to God. And in this test of faith... Fearing God means nothing comes before obedience to God. If you fear God, you let nothing come before him. If you fear God, you let nothing come before him. Not your spouse, not your wife, not your husband, not your kids, not your job, not your hopes, not your dreams. You don't let anything come before God. If you fear God. Let's take a look at the other interpretation here that this story in Genesis 22 can be interpreted as a command against child sacrifice. This is a story that declares clearly that God is against. He is stopping the sacrifice of of children. You may say like, well, how do you see that? How is that an interpretation? Well, we have to look at the background of this story and in this worldview. In the ancient Near East, other religious practices might include you tossing your baby up on a burning altar in worship of a pagan god like Molech. The hope was that you would receive more offspring. You would receive more children if you were to give your firstborn child to Molech, it sounds absolutely horrifying, but two kings, two Judean kings, Ahaz and Manasseh, they actually passed their children through fire. But God says clearly in the story, no, we don't do that. I don't want your babies. I want them alive. I want them to live because each and every person has value and purpose. Each person is loved and cared for. Don't offer your child. In this command against child sacrifice, the fear of God means respecting all that God has created. If you fear God, you respect all that he has created. It was a couple of years back, probably about seven or eight years ago. I was in a global religions class at California Lutheran University. And we were talking in a class discussion about atonement and sin in Eastern religions. And I remember there was a young man in the class, we'll call him Robbie. And he was a very outspoken 
Catholic. And during our class discussion about atonement and sin in Eastern religions, he piped up and said, you know what? It doesn't matter how much I sin. He said this really coarsely, really offhandedly. It doesn't matter how much I sin. I can actually sin as much as I want. It doesn't matter one bit how much I sin because I can just go to my priest, do this confessional thing, and then he'll absolve me of all my sin. And at this, my insides were boiling. And as a top-of-my-class religion major, I responded as any top-of-your-class religion major would do. I cussed Robbie out. In my head. In my head. You are belittling the cross of Christ. Have you no respect? You are using grace as simply a license to sin. Do you not fear God? But then it was some time later where it came to me and I realized, am I fearing God as I condemn and criticize and chastise and cuss out Robbie in my head? Am I fearing God as I reject and write Robbie off as a beep, 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 beep? Sure, Robbie may have needed some correction. Maybe he needed some sorting out when it came to things of sin and grace and atonement. But I realized, so did I. I don't know about you. I can't speak for you. But I know for me, I feel like I don't fear God enough. I feel like I I don't fear God enough. If I feared God like I should, maybe I wouldn't sin like I do. Maybe I wouldn't try to minimize it or think it's not really a big deal. If I feared God like I should, maybe I would make more time for others. Maybe I wouldn't be so busy and and hectic and caught up in all of the things that I have to do, so self-consumed. If I feared God like I probably should, maybe I'd be kinder. Maybe I would be kinder. Maybe I wouldn't be so irritated or frustrated at the littlest thing when it gets in my way or upsets me or frustrates me. If I feared God like I should, maybe I would take to heart that I'm like Isaac. That I am Isaac, bound up, but by my sin. And here I lie on the altar. 
guilty as charged and deserving of death. But thanks be to God that he sent his one and only son to take my place. To remove the shackles and the chains that bind me. And maybe bind you too. And set us free. He gave his one and only son, his son whom he loved. For you and for me. And this act of obedience has changed our world forever. It deserves highest praise, adoration, honor, thanksgiving, and fear. The awe and the wonder. The respect and reverence that this act deserves is incomparable. I want to welcome the band back up as we wrap things up today. Over the weekend, my wife and I went to a marriage conference called Marriage Well. And it was awesome. They had some great speakers. They had some great testimony shared. It was a really fun time. We went on Friday night and then all day yesterday. And in the middle of it all, I'm like, I have to prepare stuff. I have to do stuff. I'm busy. And then it was just nice to just rest and realize that things will get taken care of because God is God, and he'll take care of what needs to get taken care of. But as we were just about to consider to leave early, uh, Tara's like nudging me, should we go now? Should we go now? And I'm like, in my heart, I'm like, yeah, we should have gone like two hours ago. That would have been nice. Even though we were having fun. But I'm glad we didn't. I'm glad we stayed because something incredible happened at the end where they brought up three chairs and they had two elderly people, Randy and Lynette, and they were interviewed by this pastor. And they look like a wrinkle-free family. You know, they just look great on the outside. Everything is beautiful about them. Like, they probably have a really nice dog. They have, like, white teeth. They probably have a really nice house, beautiful kids. All of these things. A wrinkle-free life. You know those people, right? You know someone like that? Well, it seemed like they were wrinkle-free until they actually told their story. And their story just, I was like, what? This guy and this girl? There was a story about an affair. There was a story about pornography use. All of this stuff. And I'm like, how in the world did the people muster the courage to come up here and talk about this right in front of each other, in front of everybody? And they're crying, they're sobbing, but... They've come together and walked through this. And then Randy, the guy who was speaking, he, he was talking at the end about a sermon or, or a text of scripture that really helped him and has helped him through this whole ordeal. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5. And you're like, all right, I've heard that one over and over. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean on, on your own understanding. Whatever. But he was like, There's so much more to that verse. There's more verses there. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own insight. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make make straight your path. And you're like, okay, we, we hear that all the time. But then, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And at this, as he was reading it, I was like, A ton of bricks just hit me. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be a healing 
for your flesh and a refreshment for your body. Well, what will be a healing for your, fle- your flesh and a refreshment for your body? Well, the subject is still the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, the awe, the wonder, the reverence, the respect for God will be a healing for your flesh and a refreshment for your body. So I want to encourage you today, wherever you may be, wherever you're at, if you're good at fearing God, if you're terrified of God, if you lack the fear of God, I want you to open up your heart and ask God to amaze you. When was the last time you were amazed by God? Like really amazed, not just like, oh, there's a parking spot open. How amazing. Glory to God. No. I mean, like you're just completely dumbfounded by the glory of God. It may be a miracle. It may be something amazing that has happened in your life. It might just be like looking up at the skies at night and thinking, wow, I am so small. And God is so big. And it's incredible. And I'm in awe. It's something I, I think I want to start doing is when I'm amazed by God, miracle, whatever it may be, I want to take like a rock or something, a stone, like write it down, like right on the rock. Like, God, you were faithful at this time in my life. Like we couldn't pay the bills and you helped us. Or, or I was struggling with this, or I was sick, or I was this or that, or I had cancer, or, or this person was struggling in my life and, and you you intervened. I want to do that. Like, just get a bunch of rocks and start writing the things down when God does something amazing. And I know that, man, I'm going to have a rock garden. That that I'm going to have this whole, like, eco-friendly, waterless yard. Because that's how faithful God is. And now we're in a drought. It's a great time to start doing that. Would you pray with me? Father, we love and adore you and we are grateful that you care about us enough to send your one and only son to pay the penalty for our lives and our sin and our wrongdoing. I pray, Lord, that we would learn what it means to fear you more, to honor you more, to incorporate more of you into our lives. We thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus that has healed us and made us whole. I ask, Lord, for people in here today who who want that healing, want that wholeness, that they would open up their hearts and pray, Jesus, would you come into my life? I believe that you died on the cross for my sin and my shame. Come into my heart. Become my king. Because I believe you rose from the grave, defeating death once and for all. Lord, we love you. And we need more of you in our lives. Amaze us, we pray. God, we, we must declare that we are already amazed by you. So now we sing, Lord, and worship you and honor you as you deserve. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.